There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who's somewhat cream cracker today, but I am... 43 degrees and 34 minutes and minus 79 degrees and 38 minutes which puts me back in the bosom of my family in Burlington in southern Ontario in Canada land and as always I'm joined by that most well-traveled of capable women it's Claire Asprey who's back from Oz how was your holiday Claire? It was lovely and a whole range of different locations of which more in future episodes, no doubt. Um, but I'm now back in my normal home coordinates, which I have written down somewhere, but uh, I'll, I'll share some from other places that were different from that in future shows. So you're back in boring Bedford? It's not boring, it's lovely. Folks, this is Map Corner, the podcast that is dedicated to the map, the love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So... As I always say, if Peter's is your projection, you're in the right place. And oh, it's funny enough, we have a question uh, from a caller about projections. Uh, but today it's a mapping free for all, folks. Um, there is no form to this show other than it's loosely connected by a love of uh, maps. Other than that, don't know. Don't know what we're going to talk about. Stuff, I suppose. Mixed bag. Exactly. A potpourri, so to speak. Um, Lucky dip. <laughs> we can keep going at this, can't we? Um, don't forget, folks, this is a brand new podcast. So we need you to review us on Apple iTunes. And and I did say in the last episode, we'll give you a roll call. But as Claire would no doubt attest, I've been all over the place trying to get this show done. Like uh, we should have recorded it last week and then I got the time wrong today. It should have been earlier on this week. So 
we're going to do the roll call next next episode. So if you want to hear your name mentioned on Map Corner, uh, go on to Apple iTunes, write us a review, and your name will be read out. Now, Claire, in red. So on this show... Uh, we have calls from Thomas, who has a question about the most livable cities. Uh, Megan asks about map projections, which ones we should trust. And I think there's probably an entire episode in that at some stage. Uh, Ken comes back uh, with a dose of history about GPS. We love Ken, don't we? And uh, Nicole, who asks about which city is a gourmet's delight. Remember, this show uh, kind of survives off not just mine and Claire's witterings, but also your calls. So quite simply to get a call in, you go onto a thing called SpeakPipe. Quite simply go onto mapcorner.space. That's the website. I know it's a bit of a funny URL. It's mapcorner.space. Type that in over on the little right hand side. You'll see a red tab. Hit that and leave your question. But first, before the calls, it's an interview with Matt Brown from thelondonist.com. And he's the creator of some of the most tweetable, some of the most memorable maps of the moment. Here's my chat with Matt. Matt, um, for me, London's always been kind of at the centre of mapping. And I suppose I was kind of thinking about this yesterday and I thought, why do I always think of London being a Brummie uh, first? Is that because of Anglo-centric cultural bias or is it because of the Greenwich Meridian? Um, why do you think that London is so central to our depiction and mapping of the world? Oh, what a big question to start off with. I right. think this, I think you've also right. hit it by giving a list of a few reasons, and it's not mm. one simple answer. Greenwich is a large part of it. Mm. Another large part of it, of course, London was the centre of uh, not just the Renaissance, but the kind of later the um, the Enlightenment sort of era when places like the Royal Society first started laying down the laws of science and geography and rational thinking. And, of course, you've got things like the Royal Geographical Society, the Royal Geological mm -hmm. Society, all these institutions that are, are map-based or geography-based all sprang up in London. And then you've got the cultural side as well. I mean, London's always been this huge centre of culture. And so out of it uh, stemmed various art forms and, and creative bursts. And part of that has fed into the mapping process as well, which I shall talk about later, I think. So, you know, you talked about the Royal Geographical Society. Yeah. When you become editor-at-large of The Londonist, do you automatically get, like, ushered into the top table of that august establishment? <laughs> Does that just, like, come with a job? I should imagine they're not even aware of our website. <laughs> very, different, <laughs> very different circles, I think. Are, are you quite sure? Because The Londonist is somewhat influential um and totemic for a certain type of Londoner. So tell us about the Londonist and who exactly uh you guys believe actually looks at your website. Yeah, sure. So we've been going now. We're a web we're purely a website, although we do mm -hmm. the odd spin-off thing like a, a book or a podcast. But we are a website and we've been going fifteen or sixteen years now, which makes us pretty decrepit and ancient by web standards, although we, we'd like to think we're still pretty fresh-faced and, and young. And the, the sort of scope of the site is anything and everything a Londoner might find interesting. So that's a mix of local news, transport stories, lots of history and features about where the city came from, where it's going, uh, lots on architecture, just a personal passion of mine, and mm. lots of maps as well, because I think maps are just 
sometimes the easiest way to tell a story in a succinct and engaging way. And uh, our typical reader, there is no typical reader. They're, they're anyone and everyone who lives in the city. And actually way beyond as well, we find we have lots of readers from all over the world who either love England or London or, or, or are expats living abroad. Let, let's focus in on on the maps because you and I were kind of put together by somebody. Uh, we, we, we had a virtual handshake on Twitter, didn't we? Somebody right. says... Dude, Royfield, you do maps. This geezer produces maps. I think you should meet if you don't already know each other. And like, oh, we don't know each other. So um, give us the history of the Londonist through the maps and tell us about the reason why you fell in love with kind of cartography. Um, give us that whole story and then we can go balls deep into mapping. <laughs> OK, well, I think I've always been into maps, I think. Uh-huh. A lot of people are. It's, it's almost a cliche to say I like maps because I think everyone does deep down, don't they? But I remember as, as a youngster, I used to, I guess I used to read a lot of those sort of fantasy novels like Lord of the Rings or the David Eddings Uh-oh. stories. And those, they always Uh-oh. come with these beautiful maps at the start. Uh, and uh-huh. um, and that got me into drawing my own maps of, of fantasy realms when I, mm-hmm. when I was young. And I've always been pretty poor at art. I'm not, I'm not an artist. I can't draw very well. But map making was the way I sort of channel my creativity and to try and join ranges of mountains that don't exist and rivers and things like that. So for you, it was fantasy maps. It was a way of channeling uh, your creativity and imagination. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I was creating my own version of Lord of the Rings, but only as a map. I I didn't have the skill to to write a story. The map was Mm -hmm. what it was all about for me. Um, and then I kind of parked that interest, I suppose, when I went on to university and things. Uh, I, I studied chemistry and biochemistry about as far away from the mapping world as, as you could get, really. And um, so I didn't really do much. But then I, when I moved to London, I became fascinated with the city and how it was laid out. I suppose I saw it like a science project for, for myself mm-hmm. in a way. And I wanted to know every street. I wanted to know every park. I wanted to know every cool bar and, and, and everything to do with London. And um, and that's when I didn't found Londonist or start Londonist, uh, but I was there more or less from the start when I found these like-minded people who were also passionate about the city and wanted to tell its stories. And uh, we started off mostly doing snarky takes on local news, if I'm being honest, and maps weren't mm-hmm. really part of it in the early days. Uh, any of your listeners who know the, the Gothamist website or Chicagoist, it's more akin to those in its earliest days uh, but as a couple of years went on i thought uh, what new ways can we use to tell the story of london and it's then that at the same sort of time google maps started bringing out its my maps interface or whatever the precursor to that was called where you could actually put together simple digital maps uh, of whatever you wanted and publish them on the web very mm. easy to use technology and a very easy way to to tell a story now i used it initially to map all the wi-fi spots in london which seems a quaint idea now that everywhere's got wi-fi pretty much but back mm. in 2007 2008 it was it was the odd cafe or the odd bar that would have wi-fi so we made a map of all the wi-fi spots and we actually sold, sold it as an early iphone app um, one of the first sort of spin-off products we ever did. Uh, it did quite well, and it sort of gave me a f- the flavor of building these maps uh, in Google Maps uh, ever since. And we, we still make them in Google Maps to this day. It just It's still the simplest technology for putting things like that together. So we, so I bumped into many of your maps. Um, is it fairly safe to say, then, that maps are used as a way to create virality for the Londonist? It's a case of, I'm going to create a map on X 
we know that basically, basically people are going to share it. It's going to drive traffic back to the site. Is that fundamentally it? That's a really interesting question. Um, it's part of it. So mm-hmm. for sure, we've made maps along those lines. I'll give you an example. Uh, we've got a show over in the UK called Great British Bake Off, where people compete to make cakes. So when that the new series of that was coming out, I decided mm-hmm. to take the tube map and change every single station name on that map to a baking pun. Uh, like Baker Street is a very easy one to do, <laughs> but I try. I found one for all, all 270 tube stations plus the Stop overground. It. Not not in Hillgate. What's, oh, what's you come up with there? God, I, I haven't got it in front of me. I, um, what would I have done? Notting Hill grate for a cheese grater. No, it's probably something better than that. But oh, I, melt, right. I melted my brain coming up with over 400 puns for this map. But we knew that one would work as a kind of viral thing, so it was worth the probably two days of effort I put into it. Uh, mm. So for sure we've done that. But then we've done some pretty uh, almost academic-style maps as well. I um, One of the earliest ones I did, 2009, I've always been obsessed with – uh, technology in the Second World War called the V2 rockets. I don't mm-hmm. know uh, how well known they are outside uh, Europe, but uh, at the t- tail end of the Second World War, Hitler's getting desperate. He launches the first uh, rocket weapons on the UK and other countries as well. And something like five or 600 fell on the UK. And these were incredible technology for the time. They would actually fly in just into space. So people think Sputnik was the first thing in space. But the V2 rockets actually dipped into space and came down again faster than the speed of sound. You couldn't hear these things coming. And bam, they would completely wipe out a whole block uh, all mm. over london this was happening terrifying weapons and um no one had ever really made a map of where all these things had landed and uh it was a really interesting project to map because you can still see the scars in the london landscape today you go to hackney marshes in east london wow. from the ground you can't really see much there's a few duck ponds here and there when mm. viewed from google satellite view you can see this is a crater and it dates from the second world war elsewhere where where one of these things hit a block of houses you'll see a a nice victorian terrace is interrupted by a 1960s brutalist concrete structure and that's again Mm -hmm. where this rocket fell so by mapping these things you could kind of really get this nice satellite view impression of, of how the modern city was shaped by the scars of war uh, and beyond that the most gratifying thing about this map this map of v2 rockets as soon as we published it, we were getting loads and loads and loads of comments below the article from people who were there at the time. These are people in their 80s and 90s now who were mm. children at the time, and they remember these terrifying weapons hitting London. And they were leaving comments describing eyewitness accounts of, of the, the horrors, um, the sort of testimony that isn't necessarily recorded anywhere else. And they were recording this straight onto a map. And in one case, we even had two distant uh, relatives who've not seen each other since the second world war who rediscovered each other in the comments field to that map which was really oh, wow. gratifying for us as a fairly young website at the time to uh, to bring people together like that that map sounds like a brexiteer's wet dream <laughs> <laughs> um it's, it's interesting you say about like the stories and the recollections that kind of come from that i used to live on torbay road in kilburn I lived there for about six, seven years. Oh. And the house directly opposite. So it's this rather uh, beautiful um, kind of Victorian road. And we, we had this terrace house. And the house opposite it, I'd never really noticed until the next door neighbour, lovely old lady, said to me um, that the house opposite 
hours had been bombed in the Second World War. And she said there was a there was a single lady who used to live there with her child and they both died. And when you looked at the house, you could actually see on closer inspection that half of it, the brickwork was newer than the other half. So it'd be and it was exactly the story of I don't know if it was a V2 bomb, but it was German bombing. And and yes, and the evidence of the Second World War is actually all around us if you if you know what to look for. And as I said, you looked at it and you realised that the sandstone brick was was newer on one half of it than the other, but it was still this Victorian house and you know this tragedy which kind of had, be, had taken place there. And there was my next door neighbour that remembered it. You know, she remembered. Uh, you know the german bombing of that road and that must be like a profound kind of effect on people who can live through something like that and then it's it's wonderful that you can kind of create a tool and then like actually to map that out but as we kind of said you know london is kind of ripe for mapping there's so many things about london are absolutely iconic aren't they so even like the shape of the thames you know if you just put that squiggle on a piece of paper People know what it is. Like the Isle of Dogs is very distinctive, you know. Uh, and of course, it's kind of East Enders, isn't it? You know. So, so, so many things about London have been iconic. But your mapping, um, which you do for the Londonist, isn't just London, is it? So, one of the last things which which I saw, um, and we had a little bit of a ding dong about this, was your literary map of Britain. Um, now I'm a big fan of the arches. Don't come much bigger than me. So it's so big that I have a podcast about it. Um, tell us how you go and go and map something like this. Is it a case of like, you've just invited a whole load of, uh, you just read a whole load of shit basically <laughs> yeah, all your life, you know, and then how do you determine, um, exactly where Ambridge actually is or supposed to be on a map and how long does that take you so let, let's let's go through that and then let's just weave a path and end up wherever we end up okay there's quite a lot to unpack there maybe if your listeners benefit i'll just describe what this map is mm. so it's okay it's the whole of britain uh, i've not done northern ireland i've kept it to great britain so england mm. scotland wales and every single fictional why, location. Why, did, why didn't you do Northern Ireland? Was it you didn't want to <laughs> upset any kind of sectarian sensibilities, or was purely it of... for the very trivial reason that I wanted mm. to call the map "Fake Britain" because it's got a nice resonance to it, whereas "Fake ah. Fake UK" or "Fake United Kingdom" just doesn't quite do the same thing. And so, but but, it, but you know what? That in and of itself is is somewhat interesting, and it's something which we're going to talk about on Map Corner in a, in a future show. But. How many people really know what the United Kingdom, Britain, Great Britain, actually mean, where they end, you know, start and end? Very few. And even those who do think they know, including myself, often get it wrong. When you get down to the minutiae, you get down to places like, not that I want to call Jersey and Guernsey minutiae, but you know what I mean? Things like the Channel Islands. That's exactly and, what you've done, sir. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <they're... laughs> yeah. Those, those very wonderful islands off, off the South Coast. And, and British overseas territories, how they fit into the picture. And it is such mm-hmm. a tangled web that even Ordnance Survey have been known to get this wrong from time to time when they've been mm. fighting get back against people on the internet about certain uh, nomenclature. They've got it wrong themselves. It's so complex. Because uh, a lot of it is based on tradition and then uh-huh. other parts of it are based on law and official definition. And there are clashes sometimes between the two and confusions. I didn't know that as we're going off on a bit of a tangent here but i didn't know until i'm going to say five years ago that britain 
is the Union of England and Wales and that Great Britain is England, Wales and Scotland. I didn't know that. Well, that's a debatable definition in itself. Uh, Uh Some would say that. Uh, Others would say Britain and Great Britain are interchangeable. You could also use Britain to mean the the main island, which is to say Wales, England and Scotland as a landmass, a geographical Mm. term, whereas Great Britain is that plus all the little islands like the Isle of Wight and the, the Shetlands and the Orkneys dotted around it. But the Isle of Wight's part of England. It is. It's part of England. But is it part of Britain or is it part of Great Britain? My my understanding is yes to both of those. But there are alternative definitions which would not include it in Britain if you're just talking about the island of Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the type of nerdy talk that the <laughs> listeners love. But anyway, go on. let's, go, let's go, go, go back to fake Britain. Fake Britain. So it's a map of every single fictional location I mm-hmm. could find. And that's not just TV. It's novels. It's graphic novels, it's computer games, poetry sometimes even, mm-hmm. and also um, mythology as well. So there are there are various islands off Wales and Cornwall from kind of Arthurian legend or, or other kinds of antiquity. Uh, and they're all on this one map together. And uh, mm-hmm. I think we've got something like 800 locations on there now. Uh, it's taken a long time to put together. But so you're of, still actually adding to it then? I am, yeah. So... so um, it's a joint effort between me and I've got a, a, a co-creator in Wales who's helped me out a lot, especially with Welsh fiction. Mm. It's a, an area I've never read much. Um, and also, so what we did, we produced a, a version 1.0 of this map. We put it on Londonist and invited readers to tell us what we'd missed, help fill the gaps in. And uh, we've now had more suggestions from the readers than we seeded the map with in the first place. So it's very much a crowdsourced oh, wow. uh, map of fake Britain. And then we okay. So let's let's just zoom in on. I'm guessing you had the Crossroads Motel on there. Yeah. All right. Great. All right. So from my hometown of Birmingham. Right. I, I, that's a bad example because I'm presuming you're just going to slap it in the middle of Birmingham, aren't you? It's, I think it's south of Birmingham. It's it's quite well pinpointed, actually. I mean, I. Oh. I Nobody's watched Crossroads for a good 20 years or whenever it went off TV. So I barely Mm. remember it. I remember the theme tune. I remember both theme tunes, actually. I'm probably rare in doing it. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's quite well pimped up. All of these sort of shows, even the old ones, they have long, loyal fan followings. And they've Mm. all got kind of wiki pages where fans have tried to piece together already where these things are in relation to each other. And Crossroads is one of seven or eight locations in that show that are fictional but can be mapped. Um, okay. I, can't, I can't remember the names of the surrounding towns, but they're, they're all on this map I've made. Um, so I almost didn't have to do much work beyond finding the right websites or talking to the right people to give me the information I needed. It wasn't me watching endless episodes of Crossroads and noting down every <laughs> every, every reference I could hear. Um, it's all there on the web for you if you know where to look. All right. So so you you create you see so you pinpointed this map. You use Google google mapping tools as a way of kind of like put putting the whole thing together not for this one not for this ah, one. okay because i was going to say because so what did you actually use for this map this is just a ha- this is drawn in photoshop well i, I hand mm. drew a map scanned it in and then traced over in photoshop you hand drew a map yeah yeah old school i know yeah who the hell are you mercator or something <laughs> yeah. you hand drew a map <laughs> well, i just cut a paper and then you scan it in and there you go then digitally improve it oh all right, well, prop, props to you. This is a man who says you weren't very good at art kind of growing up, but well, you can just hand draw a map. I can't draw a, a beautiful scene with people in it, but I can do mapping quite well. Well, reasonably well. 
I don't know. I don't know if you've seen this, but Al Franken, you know the now somewhat disgraced American senator, right. uh, ex-comedian, he can hand draw a map of the United States with the states in it. Hmm. It a blank sheet of paper, bang, bang, bang. It is somewhat impressive. <laughs> so if I was to give you a blank sheet of paper, right? Could you get your mullican tie right? No, nope, I'd be all over the place. In fact. Um... I've recently had a book out, Everything You Know About Planet Earth is Wrong. And I go into some of these blind spots we all have for geography. Mm. And there's quite a famous one now is if you imagine the the UK or Britain or Great Britain or England, Scotland, Wales in your head. Where is the United Kingdom? Yeah, we could do the United Kingdom. All you need is the main island, though. Where where do you get to if you go due north from Cardiff? And it goes bang slap through the middle of Edinburgh. What? Edinburgh is due north? due north of Cardiff, yeah. Stop it. It's bizarre. It's because... Oh, I suppose because it, it does kind of... Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. The, the northeast of England does actually kind of like go kind of northwest. It kinda, it's not straight, is it? That's right. It's a problem in our brains. We like simplicity. Mm. And we, we picture the UK, or most of us do, as a, an oblong pointing straight upwards. But, of course, it leans over itself. Yes. Hunched over almost to the extent that Edinburgh is due north of Cardiff. It's remarkable. Good heavens. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Liverpool and go, well, okay, that, that <laughs> kind of makes sense. But all right. So you've done your map um, and it's been added to. So is that the fact that, in effect, you crowdsource, you get people to add, um, is that a, kind of a, com- a common occurrence with maps and map- and the kind of, that you create for the Londonist? Yeah, increasingly so. I, I've, I've pulled that trick a few times. It gets me out of a, a tight spot because it, <laughs> I'm, if I'm ignorant about something, which in general I am, um, I can present it on Londonist as half complete and ask other people to help me fill in my ignorance and show me where I've gone wrong. And people fall over themselves to help out. So um, it's a good way. If you put something up and present it as this is a finished product, it's I'm very proud of it. It's brilliant. That's a great strategy in its own right, but people will start knocking holes in it left, right, and center, and then you'll feel bad about yourself. And uh, but doing it this way around, it gets everybody involved, and your mistakes mm. are actually a strength because it brings in extra opinions and extra viewpoints that you maybe wouldn't have got. Um, and I've been overwhelmed. So, I mean, my co-creator uh, Reese Davis in Wales, um, I'd never heard of him until a couple of months ago, and he wrote to me with five or six pages of A4 of additions and corrections of t- how to adjust the fake Britain map, uh, all of which I've made. And um, I had to make him co-creator after that because he's added so much to the map that he's, his name deserves to be on it as well. Uh, so it's actually brought me together with a collaborator and we've now gone on to make two further maps with more on the way. Just just before I, I leave this kind of fake Britain map, did you have Melchester in it, Matt? Yes. We, well, there's two Melchesters. Um, what? There's the one in Roy of the Rovers team, isn't it? Melchester uh-huh. Rovers. Yes. Uh, yes. I think that was down somewhere near Bristol. I, I hunted long and hard for where that was based, and uh, I did find a very obscure reference in one one of the comic books to to where it was, and it's down somewhere near Bristol. What's the other Melchester? I forget. I've got a sneaky feeling, Matt, that you and I are kind of a similar vintage. You know, like in terms <laughs> of our kind of cultural reference points, you know, Crossroads and then Roy the Rovers, right? So you're a child of the seventies and eighties, but by, by the sounds of things, yeah, that's right. Yeah, nineteen seventy six. 
Well, well, well done, sir. Uh, so, and the other Melchester is Thomas Hardy. Yeah. Now, now Hardy, uh, he must have supplied something like 40 names for the Fake Britain map. Famously, all mm. of his locations were made up, but based on real places. So that to answer your very first question, how did I pinpoint these things on a map? Quite a few of them are really easy because people like Thomas Hardy, uh, he, he just took cities and renamed them. And they're, they're very clearly real cities, just with different names. Mm. Um, so that was how I seeded the map in the first place. Just to prove my... Um, well, I will admit to, to you, listener, that actually I, I didn't know it was actually Thomas Hardy. And I had to go and Google this. But, uh, be, but through the, the magic of editing, I could kind of pretend uh, that I did know. But I live... Uh, I lived in a place in Notting Hill called Weatherbury. And all of the blocks of that estate are Thomas Hardy references. So there was a Melchester just around the corner. And I, and I didn't realise when I first moved there that um, these were Thomas Hardy references. I actually thought that whoever had actually planned out this whole estate was a Royal the Rovers fan. You know, and that Weatherbury was some some team that you, that used to play against against Melchester Rovers. But anyway, it sh- it, sh- it shows you my working class roots and the fact that I never read any kind of Thomas Hardy. So you create maps. Um, they help bring people together. They help explain the world. They're a lot of fun. Um, how far can you take this, Matt? Ooh, well, the idea of doing fake Britain, obviously lends itself to other places and in fact we're Mm -hmm. doing fake london at the moment because there was not enough room on that one map to get all the london locations Uh, and i'm already up to 700 locations just in london what yeah so i'm going to publish that one in a week or two Um, and then we're going to take it on further we've uh, got the idea of doing a whole world atlas of of fake stuff uh, literary references from all over the world and we've already made a start in america for example so I suppose, uh, Matt, it isn't just a case of um, kind of fake Britain, but it's all, also it's a case of what other names do we call bits of Britain? Now, um, I'm a Brummie, uh, and that means something to obviously people in Birmingham. The old name of my, my hometown was Brummidgem, hence Brummie. And anybody in Britain knows knows what a Brummie actually is, but that doesn't really travel outside of the united kingdom one of the maps which i absolutely loved that you did um was exactly that it was the nicknames of britain so how much time and research did you need to uh, put in to come up with that map (laughs) well that was another one we did it in a very similar way to fake britain by Mm -hmm. seeding it with all the ones we knew out of our heads or could easily google for instance i was born in a town called cleethorpes on the east coast of oh i'm so sorry yeah me and mrs mangaloff neighbors were the two famous people i'm not famous (laughs) but she's the only famous person cleethorpes um cleethorpes for reasons nobody quite understands has the nickname meggies so we say, are you going down Meggie's at the weekend? Meaning, are you going to Cleethorpe's Beach? And nobody knows why. And so I thought probably towns all over the country have similar inexplicable mm. nicknames and some that are explicable. But it'd be great to put all these things on one map and have a kind of alternative geography of, of Britain where everything's given by its nickname. London, of course, is the big smoke or sometimes the great when, a when being a, a boil or a pustulous growth um so london's always had lots of nicknames but i didn't know 
any nicknames for Birmingham, for example, and, and Brum was actually the only one I could really find. Uh, could you enlighten me? Are there any other nicknames for Birmingham? Uh, no, uh, you know, uh, no, we, it's Brum and we are Brummies. Though the one thing which I only discovered quite recently, and I thought I knew my Brummy history, was that Birmingham uh, renamed itself in the late 18th century. That the, but up until that point, it, w- it, it basically was a Brummidgeum. And as the city becomes this kind of burgeoning centre of the Industrial Revolution and the middle classes start to move in, your James Watts start developing the steam engine at, at Soho Workhouse in Birmingham, the middle class go, it sounds somewhat downhill to be in a place called Brummidgeum. <laughs> so they renamed it, rebranded it Birmingham. I think there's and, a lot of that. Yeah, I think Brighton went through a similar exercise. Yeah, Br- Brythel's home. Something yes. like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not sure if it was the same reasons, but it was about the same time it changed or settled down on Brighton. I think uh, with Brighton it was when the Prince Regent kind of like mm, was do, doing his thing down there and stuff. Quite probably, but, yeah. But Birmingham was one of the first, because Birmingham was the end of the 18th century, and I think Brighton is the start of the 19th century. Like, Brummies became lots of firsts, of which people just go, whatever. Right. And I think we're probably the first or at least one of the first in terms of a major cities actually to completely kind of rename itself to, you know, come up with a more kind of modern sound sounding name. But the echo of Brummidgeum is still there in that we are still Brummies. There's still that renaming thing goes on today. The town of Staines near London was recently renamed Staines upon Thames to make itself sound a little bit more posh. Because, of course, <laughs> Staines ain't the most pleasant of names, is it? My favourite on the whole map, though, we're going back to Brighton, the neighbouring uh-huh. town of Hove. Mm-hmm. Its, its nickname is apparently Hove Actually because everyone always calls it part of Brighton. Yes. And to, to separate themselves, we're Hove Actually. So that's their, their nickname. There is a whole kind of slew of English place names which do sound shit, like barking. Mm. It, you know, it, it, it sound, I don't, it's a real bad pun. I don't, don't mean to say this, but he's barking to call somewhere barking. It's just like, it, it's kind of mad. And then slough. Yeah, slough's a famous Slough one. sounds dreadful. Yeah. Stains, you know, there is this, I, 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 I don't know, but maybe um, we should um, revisit terrible place names some of it some of it actually uh, there's one called penge in in london yes. but mm-hmm. penge sounds weird to the modern ear because it's probably of um ancient sort of celtic origins whereas most of our place names are anglo-saxon or, mm-hmm. or medieval very few place names stayed with us from celtic times and penge is one of them and that's the theory as to why that sounds weird to the ear i don't know if slough is also in that category but uh, one or two of the others are Obviously, we have a passion for maps. Do you think that what you've really tapped into is seeing seeing the familiar world, the familiar shape, whether it's the United Kingdom, whether it's London, but seeing it in a new way? And you think that that basically, and I mean this with all greatest respect, is your shtick, basically. It's showing somebody something which they kind of recognise, but giving it a new, a new veneer. Absolutely. And I think uh, we've actually deliberately targeted that idea on Londonists many times. The most obvious example is the tube map. Everybody the world over has at least seen a tube map. We know what it Mm -hmm. is. Londoners know bits of it inside and out. So there's a whole genre of mapping, which is fake tube maps, which I'm not sure 
Transport for London, our local transport authority is very chuffed with because uh, we're taking their copyrighted maps and then changing all the names and labels on it to either humorous things or uh, even educational things in some instances. Um, I made a tube map of medieval place names once, which is a way of showing what places like Notting Hill and um, I don't know, barking used to be called in, in ancient times. So it's a kind of bit of fun, but you learn something at the same time. And mm. I think that, that's what we're all about on Londonist. It's it's um, putting a smile on people's faces, but also teaching them something new about the city they live in. Right. So uh, you are um, the, 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 kind of the, chief, the chief map man um, at, at the Londonist, but let's put map into one side. And work. what else do you do? What else floats your boat, Matt? Well, I love nothing more than just wandering the streets of London. And I guess that's a map related skill in itself, the exploration mm. side. But I love going around just trying to spot things i never seen before i've got a rule i have to go in a new building every single day or at least every what? single every single day i i leave the house anyway there's, when i work from home i don't do this but um there's so many cafes and bars in london it's easy to do that but there's also all the galleries and museums and things mm-hmm. that you could find a new place every day quite easily um i'll always try and walk down a new it, road it, it- is there some kind of Latin word for this weird obsession of yours that you need to walk in, walk into a new building every well, well, day? If you look? The usual response is you should get out more, but it's kind of that's the problem. I get out too much and uh, <laughs> I need to restrain myself a bit. Um, but it's it's exploration. It's building a mental map of the world. I, I mean, I can't escape. It's part of my my being is is mapping, even if it's not making a physical map. Learning how the city fits together in my head is is who i am really that's everything i do do you think that's what you are really ultimately a frustrated explorer <laughs> i think i'm a G- i'm a walking gps unit i think <laughs> I, I don't know um yeah I th- there was nowhere left to explore uh, easily these days is there i mean th- there are still untapped realms like the the whole of the seabed or or 95 percent of the seabed is unmapped the whole of space but you need some pretty expensive kit to do it so the Mm. only place a normal person can explore is the city he or she lives in and uh, london is a butte for that because there's just there are whole boroughs that even i've only been to two or three times and within that borough there's 80 90,000 people and 2,000 3,000 roads to explore that i've never been down and that's just one of the 32 london boroughs Uh, it's an infinite city it's uh, illimitable it's something you just can't possibly explore thoroughly even if you had 10 lifetimes Uh, so it's such a challenge to try and get a head full of that city and learn it all you know what though um just whisper it to me what is your least favorite london borough (laughs) <laughs> Sutton. what's up with Sutton? <laughs> it's boring in fact i've, <laughs> I've no okay I I've, I've already alienated the channel islands and now i've alienated the whole london borough of Sutton. but i once did an article called something like did anything interesting ever happen in the borough of Sutton?" and i th- i think i found five things in the whole of history that happened in the borough of Sutton. one of which was a man being attacked by a lion so that kind of makes sense <laughs> um, the, the other four i can't remember that's how uh, uninspiring it was so if any of your listeners know the <laughs> london borough of Sutton and can put me right I'd, I'd love to hear some interesting tales from that part of south london tell you what matt j- j- just to end up um it kind of shows you how how blind i am to detail so uh, we were given this kind of uh, virtual handshake by a third party on twitter 
And uh, it was only today when I, when I looked at your email, I realized that you and I are kith and kin, sir. We are both Browns. That's right, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> there was a, a, we did talk about this on, on the last map, uh, map Corner episode, but there is a wonderful um, heat map of British surnames. And I must admit, I didn't bother to put Brown in. And what's the point of that? They're going to be everywhere. Um, but I suppose in our dim and distant pasts, uh, maybe we, we are related. So that's, that's, an, that's another kind of mapping link to us and whatever. Oh, so. you, you could probably have 10 shows on genealogical mapping. There's all kinds of conversations there, uh, how people's surnames move around. And uh, I've done some of that myself. And, uh, yeah, Brown is a really hard name to do. But one of my great-grandparents had the wonderful surname of Standaloft, uh, which I presume was because some ancestor was very tall uh, rather than being mm. well-to-do or anything. Uh, but we're all from Lincolnshire originally, so the other side of the uh, the, the, the spine of the country to you um, as a brummie. But, uh, yeah, yeah, Brown's everywhere. It's impossible to map them. Absolutely. Matt Brown, thank you for coming on to Map Corner and, and shining a little bit of a light into the wonderful world of mapping London through The Londonist. Thank you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, it's Mark here, otherwise known as Yokel Bear on the Twitters. Um, this is my postcard for a place that I love, which is Avebury in Wiltshire. Now, I'm from Wiltshire, I'm from Swindon. And so Avebury, which is just down the road from Swindon, was somebody that, somewhere where I spent a lot of my childhood. I used to cycle down there or go there with my parents. And... It's a place that has always really stayed with me. Um, Avebury, of course, is best known for being the site of one of the biggest Neolithic stone circles 
um, in Europe. And it's so big, the village is actually within the stone circle. And it's a very quiet, um, rural place. It's not a big village. Um, But what really I love about um, Avebury is the feeling that you get. Because this stone circle's there and we don't really know why it was there. Was it religion? Was it something else? Um, And it gives a real spooky, unknown kind of atmosphere to the place. Um, You can walk around the stone circles and there's giant ditches as well uh, on the outside of the stone circles that you can, you know, it's a a place that you can go and when I was a kid I could go and play. And, but I became fascinated by the history. But it's also fascinated me because it's like, the quintessential English countryside. It lies on the Ridgeway, um, which is a series of downs that crosses across the middle of England. Um, So it's green fields and sheep and um, yellow fields of rape during summer. Um, And, but in the middle of this, there's this structure, this unknown stone circle and it really kind of it creates an atmosphere that I just cannot get enough of. Um, also, as well, one thing that really influenced me was the children's TV series, The Children of the Stones, which was set in the the, um, the made up village of Millbury, but it was filmed at Avebury. So really, it was about Avebury. Um, and again, that kind of hooked into the kind of spookiness and the the mystery of the place the best time to go to Avebury I think is you know very often early spring mornings when there's fog and um you know mist just to really enhance the entire weirdness of the place um so yes that's my favorite place and that's my postcard um go to Avebury it's weird it's strange it's beautiful So, yes, Avebury. This part of the show is probably my favourite. I like it that um, you, the listener, send in your audio postcards. So I'd like to thank Mark Everden, sometimes known as Yokelbit on the Twitter, for a wonderful snapshot of Avebury in Wiltshire. Thanks, Mark. Now, Colette, it's time for the calls. Um, First off, we have... Thomas? Well, it's actually Nicole first off. Okay. Well, I could I could read those out if you told me which order they were going to be in. Well, yes, doesn't matter. All right. First off, it's Thomas. Hi, Royfield. Hi, Claire. This is Tom Daly from the American Biography Podcast. I was just wondering what city is regarded as the best in terms of livability or best known for its urban planning. Thanks. I'll hang up and take my answer off air. Mm, a great question. I this whole thing about livability, something which is relatively new in terms of even having it as a thing, isn't it? I don't don't remember anybody talking about places that were livable in the eighties or the nineties. It seems to be like a naughty's thing, which is uh, and a, but it's a very good guide as to if a city or if a town is somewhat pleasant. Yeah, and I think it's good. My sister moved to Can uh, to Canada to Vancouver, well, off and on throughout the noughties. and I remember Vancouver being very highly rated mm-hmm. on the international livability scale, whatever components made that up. 
uh, all through that time. And I went to visit and it was very nice. I went to Seattle for the first time last summer. Totally fell in love with it. Obviously, um, what I can, what I do is compare and contrast with my American home, which is San Francisco. And San Francisco is an exciting place. You know, it's very dynamic, but it's, it's, it's dirty. It's, it's grimy. There's human detritus literally on the ground. And last year they started having, um, human waste, um, extractors. That's not the right word. Uh, patrols. There you go because there's so many homeless people in some areas of, of San Francisco. And going from San Francisco to Seattle was an utter eye-opener. Seattle was so clean and so well-ordered. And I'd say to people in Seattle, oh, my God, you can eat your food off, off the floor here. And they'd all say, but you haven't been to Vancouver. That's what they <laughs> all said in, in Seattle. And, 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 it was just, and it was just so beautiful. So I had a look at the CNN um uh, they're basically most liberal cities in 2018 and other websites do do this uh, but i think their list is the most authoritative and number one um i know you're looking at this but would you have guessed that number one was vienna i wouldn't have no although some of those central um european cities have had a real renaissance i'm thinking of berlin as well which is incredibly fashionable i'm not sure it's on the list but it's something that you know seems to have a lot of mm. cultural life re-emerge and i guess vienna's already had a very strong cultural history anyway and some great architecture you know and a river and stuff mm. like that people like that so um you know i would say from bedford everyone loves the river so uh you know i think it's those sort of things that sit in the background of a place if you can get that background right some of the more other livable factors can sit on top of that and that's a really good starting point mm. and and also it's to do with um cost of housing isn't it yeah. it's the ease of and um location to to various resources you know is it easy to shop there and also places that score high on the livable scale fundamentally it's kind of families it's you know are children safe there is crime relatively low are the schools yeah. good um it's a whole kind of it's a whole kind of a mixture of things but to just go through this list so number one so you really should do this in reverse order can you play the uh, top of the pops music over the top of this so number 10 <laughs> Number 10 was Adelaide in Australia. Number nine, Copenhagen, which I've been to. It's absolutely lovely. Uh, and then number two, number seven, is a tie between Toronto and Tokyo. I'm surprised that Toronto is so high. Um, I know Toronto very well. It's where I am at, at the moment. Um, I would have said that the livability index of Toronto has actually gone down in, in the 15 no i've been coming here for 20 years there visibly are more homeless people here now in toronto than there ever were 20 years ago like you never saw any um and there are high-rise condos apartments uh, all over the lake in toronto so i'm surprised that toronto is so high on this list vancouver as we've said your, you know, your sister raved about it in the noughts. Sydney, Australia, Calgary, Canada. Number three is Osaka in Japan. Number two is Melbourne, which I think used to be number one. And then number one was was, was Vienna. 
But it's interesting that you look at the list and Australia has one, two, three cities and Canada ha also has three. So there's, there's a large kind of, kind of cultural kind of component there um, to do with the equitability, and that's not quite the word, and I've definitely uh, mangled saying it, of the societies where those cities actually reside. Yeah, and the uh, kind of uh, Nordic cities are generally seen in within Europe as really nice places to be. One thing that people um, say to counter this livable cities thing and i think they kind of put this into the mix but it's it's always one of the things people say about switzerland yeah it's great but it's boring yeah and you kind of have a feeling that some of these cities like calgary in canada mm, you know if you're really into the arts or you're into anything kind of cutting edge i don't think i'm going to be you know decamping off to calgary anytime soon i can't speak for osaka and definitely can't speak for for adelaide and stuff but generally you know cities which are big and vibrant aren't seen as necessarily livable but they're seen as exciting places aren't they so your new yorks and, and, and your londons yeah so there's a if you're judging livability by safety sometimes there's a correlation between safety mm. and perceptions of being dull and actually there's a really good book written by uh, Mark Lawson who's like the cultural commentator who wrote a uh, sort of travel book about 20 years ago called Journeys to All the Safe Places or something like that and uh, he does go to middle America and he goes to Canada and he goes to Australia and it's really funny because he writes this sort of um, section all about how Australia is brilliant and colourful and marvellous and then he goes to the boring places in Australia <laughs> to explain about why they're different um, so yeah some of the places mm -hmm. that do score well are perhaps the ones that are seen as less edgy which you know not everyone wants to be edgy I guess mm. and especially if you you know if you're bringing up a young family you don't need edge do you no, that's no. the last thing you want Absolutely. you just want you, you want utter, utter safety and, and it's interesting being physically in Burlington which is part of greater Toronto this is a suburb there's no two ways about it um, with strip malls and visually it's very boring um, you look at the range of businesses that are here to do with just cuisine, just, just eating out. It is a case of, do you want pizza or do you want a burger or maybe another pizza or maybe another burger, you know, and then there's the odd shawarma place kind of thrown into the mix. And what places like this suffer from is a, an energy drain, you know, when teenagers grow up and they go, my God, the place almost feels stultifying. And then they want to get into the big city, don't mm -hmm. they? You know, and they want to see uh, diversity in all forms, you know, whether it's people of different ethnicities and then that's recognised by then food that they find on, on, on street corners and then musical ch uh, choices, bars, and just not to see the same old bloody faces you've seen for the first 18 years of your life. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's interesting that you have this constant move of people as they go through life cycles where um, you start off on your adult life and you want to go into the big city because it's seen as somewhere exciting. But then as you go through your adult years and you decide you want to start a family, somewhere which is livable, is very oh, yeah, high absolutely. on your list. And it's, uh, you see that in the demographic flows in and out of London. So the, the places around the edges of London, you know, kind of Hertfordshire, Surrey, places like that, 
they have a really interesting demographic shift where the younger people go in and then they all come back in their sort of 20s or 30s. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really notable when you see the stats. We should really talk about um, human patterns of migration, whether it is um, internationally and then nationally on, on a forthcoming show, because it's something which find endlessly fascinating and and how cities places towns are definitely kind of you know reinventing themselves all the time and becoming attractive to different types of of, of person but the other part of thomas's question was he talked about town planning yay i was hoping you were going to mention this so listen uh, i'm going to uh, remove myself from (laughs) center mic and uh, pass it over to you asprey go Oh no! Well, I love a bit of urban planning. Um, uh, in a in another life, I might have been a planner uh, if I only hadn't discovered it too late in life. Uh, but um, it's interesting when they're asking about where, which places are well known for doing good urban planning. Um, and when I was sort of looking mm-hmm. at, into that, some of it is about small parts of cities that otherwise are not particularly well planned. That you know, the maybe the good bits are notable because they stand in contrast to the rest of the place. Um, but I would like to put a shout out for Ebenezer Howard because he invented the whole thing anyway um, with his uh, Garden Cities of the Future, which I have read for my postgrad in housing. So you know, I speak as I find with the whole Garden City thing, and uh, also I learned to drive in Letchworth, so uh, which was the first Garden City, and. Um, the concepts there were great. I think they probably haven't always kept pace with the way that modern life works and the way that massive kind of economic sub regions function. So I don't think he contemplated sort of mass transport, transport and cars in the way that he could have. Well, obviously, it was the early 1900s. So, you know, how how was he to know uh, that Letchworth would be basically a sort of satellite place where people commuted from into London? But that wasn't the point of it. The point was to live, work and have access to the countryside all very close at hand. And I think that's a really great starting point for any place, really. So, uh, mm. you know, take a chance to go and see Letchworth if you can. They've got a wonderful heritage museum there as well. So apart from him not foreseeing the rise of the car, have his other theories on what makes um, a place um, livable in term, from from a you know out from the ground up you know I'm going to plan it from a, a blank sheet of paper. Have they held up? I think some of it does. So there was some some of it was around affordability and some making you know cottages mm-hmm. that were available to you know people on modest incomes, not the most cheapest versions, but you know modest incomes. Um, some of it was about the quality of design, and there's some lovely design. Although these days it's a bit sort of um old-fashioned looking um and some of those homes don't always stand up brilliantly to modern life um but they some of them look very pretty but actually i think the most important thing about letchworth garden city which there was there's been a bit of a renaissance for people who are listening, listening around the world there's been a bit of a renaissance in the concept of new towns and garden cities across uh, the uk in various sort of moments of government exuberance and excitement in the last 10 years or more and um 
the version of what they mean by Garden City has, or New Town has changed number of times in that concept. But for me, Letchworth got it right, especially because it captured land value. And this is a bit geeky, but they have the uh, Letchworth Heritage Foundation, which uh, basically held all the freeholds of a lot of the land and owned the town mm-hmm. centre and so on. And actually, it then just reinvested the growth of value back in the town. So there's a huge amount of community value created in Letchworth, which the modern development sort of structures where you just, you know, people sort of buy it and no no one has that long-term interest and everyone who captures private value just cashes it in and there's no um, community value left in it doesn't replicate so i'd be really keen to see a return to that kind of thing which is similar to what you get in a community land trust to be fair um that would be that would be great if we could take one thing away from uh, letchworth as a model i think it would be land value capture but that is me getting on mm. my geek soapbox frankly so um you know it's also nicely laid out and beautiful to look at and it's got beautiful green spaces and uh you know nicely laid out roads ways and sensible sort of spacing we should get ben jacobs on who was on the first couple of um map corners mm-hmm. as a um who, who left calls because he actually is an urban town planner and and i forget where for it's somewhere in massachusetts it's not boston maybe it's you know what i think it's kind of like connecticut rhode island or some it's round there it's it's in new england and Ben has got a big brain for this mm-hmm. stuff. But you know, for, for people that aren't quite aware of what an urban planner does, so they look at issues to do with sustainability, uh, pollution, transport, including the potential of kind of transport, uh, obviously crime, land values, economic development, social equity, which is a little bit what you've just kind of touched on, zoning codes, and there are other bits of legislation, but it's it's a whole kind of mixture of, of those, those types of things. And I just find them endlessly fascinating. And, and talking about where I am now, physically in Burlington, which is a town, which is um, what well, they call it a city in Britain, I think we'd call it a town. It's got a population of about 180,000. And, it, and, and you can literally drive down any road unless it's rush hour and it always feels dead. There's a lack of what I call street mm-hmm. theatre. Um, and you get to all these intersections because it's North America. A lot of the roads are straight, which I think is actually actually a good thing. Uh, to be able to have a clear line of sight, to know where you're mm-hmm. going. So you orientate yourself. But unlike, let's say, a European city or, let's say, a large North American city with straight roads, each intersection has a, some kind of strip mall. And what you um, and the theatre, what your eyes are drawn to, are car parks or parking lots, as Americans would call it, with businesses around and it doesn't feel organic, and and actually uh, there is no human bustle at all. And you just think, my God, right? Why can't the, the why can't the car parks, the parking lots, be behind yeah. the shops? So the business, so the the shop fronts are directly on the street. It creates visual spectacle. Dif- it differentiates every intersection, so you you actually know where you are, you know, and. 
I'd be totally fascinated to have uh, Ben on on a show. Now, we, we should maybe do it uh, with he, where he's on mic so we don't just have an interview. So you can ask him questions. You can geek <laughs> out and do all of your uh, urban stuff. Well, I'm spending all weekend reading our neighbourhood plan. That's my next thing. I've got to sign off on we've got a committee on Monday to sign off the wording of our neighbourhood plan for our village. So we have. I've been, I've been involved in some planning for the last five years for my very little village. You, my God, aren't you the rip raw and exciting person? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I do place making at work, and then I come home and do it for where I live too. <laughs> All right, so hopefully, um, Thomas, we've half answered your question there. It's going to CNN. The most livable city in the world is actually Vienna right now. Uh, but Australia scores very highly in these things. Australia and Canada always score very highly. Um, next question is from um, a stalwart of the podcast. Uh, yours blows our doors off whenever he calls in. It's Ken McDonald. On May Day 2000, President Bill Clinton changed the world of mapping forever by ending selective availability, which had severely limited the use of the global positioning system by non-military personnel. The onboard satellite navigation systems in cars and smartphone apps would come later, of course. At the time, few civilians appreciated the decision aside from a handful of map geeks on a Usenet group called sci.geo.satellite-nav. Don't you miss Usenet? One of whom, a guy in Portland, Oregon named Dave Ulmer, promptly went and hid a five-gallon bucket of trinkets in a park and posted the coordinates to the Usenet group. He called it a geostash, but as such things proliferated around the globe, the term changed to geocache, and since then they've been monetized by geocaching.com, and there are over three million of them around the world. I found my first geocache two and a half years after that first hide. It's an activity of natural appeal to a map geek, isn't it? The bucket in Portland is long gone, replaced by a plaque honoring it, but I have found the oldest extant cache in the world, placed in western Kansas on May 11, 2000. My wife, Jen, is from western Kansas, so I thought it would be convenient when we were visiting her childhood home, failing to fully grasp the scale of the American West. turned out to be a four-hour drive each way, but well worth it, giving me a visceral sense of the vast, windswept expanses of the high plains so barren, cold, and dry that late December day. Contrast that with the time I went to find the oldest cache in the United Kingdom, placed high up on Ben Moore back in December 2000. It was an unusually warm, sunny summer day for Scotland. I parked on the edge of the A85 and started along the footpath, accompanied by my newlywed wife and our friend Nora. As the trail began to ascend, my wife chose discretion as the better part of valor and returned to rest in the car, something perhaps she's had to do a bit too often, thanks to geocaching. Nora stuck with me until it came time to go off-trail, up a grassy mountainside that had appeared to be about a 45-degree pitch. She bid me adieu there, as I followed my GPS receiver arrow pointing nearly vertically, literally grasping at tufts of grass as I scaled the cliff along a gurgling beck that dropped like a waterfall to my left. Getting back down was basically a semi-controlled series of falls, but I did find the cache first, accompanied only by a few incredulous sheep, and I enjoyed tremendous views of the highlands all around. 
I hardly cash anymore, and GPS has become quotidian, the thing on my phone that's taken the place of looking at a map before going somewhere I've never been. But I remember it fondly, do mean to get back to it, and certainly recommend it to all my fellow map geeks out there. Thanks, Ken. And I love the idea of geocaching. I've been hankering to do it for ages. I just haven't had found a map-friendly friend to do with it do it with and it felt a bit sad to go out on my own but then maybe you've inspired me to um, leave unenthusiastic people behind and just tread on and do it um, you know strike out by myself and do it by myself so uh, I'm gonna give it a go and it would be great to hear from other people who also do geocaching about you know what kind of things they found where's the most unusual place they've been what's the most unusual thing they found in a geocache um, I know a friend of mine did it recently and um, was very keen and her, her kids uh, enjoyed it too. And my daughter doesn't ever leave, like to leave the house, so she's not a prime contender for geocaching joy. What do you think, Myfield? Would you do it? Mm. Uh, you know what? I've, I've never done it. And it's funny, right? I think being into maps is the most natural thing in the world. But other people tell me it's quite geeky. Now, I see geocaching as extremely geeky. However, there is no, um, that is not a negative, Ken, because actually when I want to be you, Ken, you, you like Ken sounds like the coolest person with the best um, kind of like gizmos and whatever. And the most patient wife, because like, I'm not sure I would drive four hours to just look at something that I found in a tree and then put it back and drive home again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly there is a there is a, um, a level of obsession that <laughs> seems to go go with this stuff which i don't quite think that i have but people tell me that i have it but just in, in other ways so I, I look at it and marvel but i'm also in part somewhat scared we did something similar to this once at a uh, staff away day uh, where i used to work where we were all sent off around mm-hmm. london to do this sort of treasure hunt uh, with these sort of clues that were linked to a mobile phone thing. And um, so that was a similar sort of experience. And actually, it was quite a lot of fun. And, and if you're going to be at a staff away day, um, it does help to get out of the room and walk around a bit. So, um, you know, it does put a bit of energy back in the in the group. But talking about the group, because what we are trying to do here is to create a community of uh, Carter Files. Yeah. So if anyone wants to go geocaching near Bedfordshire, come give me a ring. Well, that's not where I was going with this, Claire. You jumped in too soon. (laughs) I'm just desperate for a friend to go geocaching with. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there are suitable websites for that. You can hook up, have your illicit hookups. Um, But if you remember back, I think it was like episode two, if you remember back that, so far i said that we need um a common identifier and i and i threw it out there that maybe this should be the amount of countries that we've been to so that would make me i don't know like a i think i'm a 29 i can't quite remember now and now i when i when i said this on on the group uh, a couple of people said that sounds like you're bit braggadocio Royfield and it wasn't at all meant to be that way and one of the people that actually said this was Ken I know and you can't fault the guy's enthusiasm for getting out and about no exactly he gets out and um, he likes a map 
and uh, and also somewhat knowledgeable and somewhat persuasive. So it wasn't meant as a braggadocio thing, though there is an inherent value put on a number. You know, somebody says, I am a number one, right? That's either you are the best or it means you, you haven't done very well at all if somebody then says, I'm a 29. So you understand the value judgment that somebody else would put on it, even though that wasn't meant in, it wasn't meant in that way at all. It's quite simply just a way for us just to uh, signify that we are part of the collective that is Matt Corner. So this sparked off somewhat of a debate. And I think um, one of our listeners, somebody on our Facebook group, came up with an elegant solution, Claire. Who is it and what was the solution? Okay, the solution comes from Chris Malcolm, who says that um, many countries have a significant national day or date in the year and we could pick the day that's closest to our birthday for example uh, and then we would be named after the nation that has a national day closest to our birthday so we don't have to travel anywhere for that we can just look it up awesome now what i'm gonna do folks i'm holding myself a hostage to fortune I'm going to um, find said site, which has um, the 194, 95 countries of the world on and what their uh, national days or Independence Day is. And then, quite simply, you go on there, have a look, and you go, oh, I'm born on the 1st of uh, July. That means I'm a Canada. So you say, hello, my name is Fred, and I'm a Canada. And we all know that we are hardcore map corner geeks. So that's what we're going to do. So thank you, Ken, um, for um, steering me away from the numbers. And then thank you to who was it again, Claire? It was, oh, you put me on the spot there. I was looking up what my day was. Chris Malcolm. And thank you to, to you, Chris, for coming up with a rather elegant solution, which, as Claire says, you don't need to travel anywhere to be a citizen of not only the globe, but also of Map Corner by having your country designation. So that's what we're going to do. So next time you call in, you know what to do, folks. Uh, Claire, shall we have yeah. another call? Awesome. Let's do that. Hello, my name is Nicole, and I'm calling from San Francisco, California. Um, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on cities in Europe to eat in. In particular, I'm thinking like the best places to eat in. In particular, I'm thinking of Paris versus London. I've been to, to both a number of times, and in Paris, I find that in sort of the nicer restaurants, the menus have weird pieces of animals that I've never heard of before, like intestines and, I don't know, brains that I have no desire to eat in. And then the lower, less expensive restaurants kind of have the same meal of pizzas and, and, and salads. So, I, of course, I love Paris and I love eating there. But London seems like it has a lot more options with the curries and, uh, of course, the sort of gourmet pub foods and, um, I don't know, so many different um, things to choose from. So I'm wondering what your all's thoughts are on that. Thank you very much. What do you reckon, Clary? Oh, well, I've never been to Italy, but I understand that's a pretty good place to eat in terms of uh, cities of Europe. So uh, uh, I would guess that would be fairly high on the list. I mean, 
it depends what kind of food you like, I guess. I'm a vegetarian, so um, living in Spain was fun. Uh, wasn't a huge amount on offer, and uh, some places are better for different kinds of things. So I don't know. You're you're a very well travelled man. What's your reckoning on uh, good places to eat in Europe? Hmm. I disagree. The first thing that you said, but it, but it, but I have to qualify it. I've spent a lot of time in Italy. And you can, and it's one thing to jump off an airport, go and visit family and friends, and invariably they will take you to nice restaurants. They cook you great food, and then they'll say, you know, third or fourth night out, let's go out. And they're not going to take you to somewhere crappy. You're not going to go to the Italian equivalent to McDonald's. So you get somewhat of a distorted view in terms of the strength of retail cuisine of a country, of a place. It's only when you independently travel and you travel on a budget that you really see a country, a region in the round. And actually, um, there's two things. There's a quality of food and then there is also choice. And if you want choice, Italy's the wrong place to go to. You can travel up and down those uh, autostrada and all you'll get is cheese and ham, cheese and ham, more ham and cheese and a bit of bread, <laughs> you know. And then you're craving for a burger or for a, uh, a Chinese or just anything. You're craving for – like if you want a Thai meal, you know, there's an argument that says go to Thailand. But we do live in a globalised world that if you find yourself um, spending, let's say, a month in Torino, you, you – you realize there isn't the diversity of other cuisines and that is in part because italian cuisine is so good so and i and i love italian food but fundamentally pizza pasta uh, lasagna etc etc it becomes a bit of a oneness after you know after a bit but also it's one of the things which italians are incredibly proud about is the strength of their cuisine and it's one of the ways of italy has displayed soft power throughout the world. You know, literally every city in the world has an Italian restaurant showing, you know, the Italian yeah. tricolor. So there are other, you know, uh, benefits to having this strong culture around food, but it kind of knocks out mm -hmm. all comers when you go to Italy. I went to gelaterias in three cities in three cities in Australia and I had gelato. So that will tell you something about the Italian soft you power go. of food. Exactly. Those Italians, you know, first you had the Roman Empire, then you had the gelaterias and the pizzerias, you know, the second <laughs> and third Roman empires, you know, after that. So uh, the best places in terms of, and here's another thing, being in California, and I frequently say, in as a retort to Californians who slag off Britain, they say, oh, it's all just like bangers and mash and stodge and pies in England, and they kind of laugh. And I go, When's the last time you were actually here? You know, yeah. um, you go to you go to London, and I would say you're going to struggle to find a better city in the world for diversity of of food. the The only obvious cuisine which is relatively poor in London in terms of numbers would be Mexican or Latin American. 
um, mm-hmm. considering how strong those food cultures actually are. You're not going to see that many Mexicans and stuff. There are some kind of chains now and stuff. But London, New York are just way ahead of any, I know obviously New York is not in Europe, but are way ahead of any other city that I've been to in terms of choice, diversity and quality. So we're not talking about saying you're eating a Portuguese meal and going down to Nando's, you know, <laughs> and Nando's is a, is a popular chain in the UK for people that are outside of the UK. We're talking about individually uh, owned restaurants by people who are from that country or their um, descendants actually were, so that it's been passed down. And there is a love of that uh, cuisine and the culture around it. And then, um, so when you eat, it isn't just you're eating food of that place, uh, of of that country, but there is almost um, a mystique around it, almost. So it's the difference between going to Pizza Express which is a chain in the UK, then going to a neighbourhood pizza restaurant where the guy owned, uh, inherited it from his grandfather type of thing. So I've been to Paris and I found a Parisian food actually quite stifling as well. But again, it, it, it's because of um, the pride and the inherent um, strength of that cultural tradition when it comes to food, that the French are just like, well, pff, you don't want to eat anything else. French food's the best. And I, and I kind of love that, but it does become, um, maybe, it's be- maybe I'm displaying too much of my British side here in that historically British cuisine was nothing to write home about. So we've adopted the food of the world so you can, as I said, you can go to London and eat out throughout the world and come back on yourself, um, you know, and and it's great food. You can have Peruvian, you can have Ethiopian. I think you've also got a thing about whether we have a culture of eating out because places where people eat at mm. home will just not have a, a vibrant and eating out culture. So it, Again, it might be a great place to eat, but you've got to be able to be invited in and be within the bosom of an existing family rather than be at a restaurant. And there are places that are a bit like that as well, where there just isn't the same culture of going out mm. for food. Where there is, you'll have a lot more vibrancy. Being in London has spoilt me in terms of giving me, uh, letting me dip my toe into different cultures so the it, the first brazilian meal i ever had was in london the first nepalese meal I ever had was in london it goes on and on and on you know and and i'm sure people from mm-hmm. those countries will say yeah but like this is an anglicized version of brazilian food or and whatever but I remember having my first argentinian meal and i know you're a vegetarian uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll say this uh, uh, lightly yeah they do like their steak holy camoly <laughs> it was different cuts of this meat and the guy who served it and he to us and he brought it out and he and he cut it up in front of us he said this one's going to be like butter this one's going to be like like mushrooms this cut i'm like yeah, yeah yeah whatever he was spot on this one cut of this uh beef was like butter these one it was just 
utterly amazing. So, but anyway, so I'd be, I'd be really quite interested to hear other people's takes actually on cities that are really good for food. And I think that fundamentally, I think there's two criteria. There is diversity and then there is quality of eateries. Yeah. You know, so please call in. Because that's not always no, the same not thing, at is all, it? Not at all. So please call in, folks. Uh, and I barely ate a tomato for a year after I came back from Spain. <laughs> <laughs> Just wasn't worth it. Just like, or, or an avocado for that matter. I was like, I'm not, yeah, I've had, I've had the good stuff. I'm not, I'm not putting up with what you can buy in a supermarket in the UK. It was just dreadful. I had to, had to reacclimatize myself to the kind of tomatoes we get here. They did not have the same punch. Did you spend much time in Madrid when you were in Spain? I was there for a weekend. But no, I was mainly in Mandalusia. Okay, well, I, I knew you were down south. I can't remember what they call it, but it's the uh, Madrid version of tapas. It's it's more substantial than tapas, and they call it a uh, whatever the uh is. And we went out at eleven o'clock m- midnight. Rafiones? You know, even if you said the name, I wouldn't remember to be honest with you. But it was just glorious. And there is something okay. very, you feel, you, you do pat yourself on the back and say, how cosmopolitan am I? You're eating out in a, a semi-street restaurant at midnight, having this food, which uh, you can barely pronounce, all tastes great. And, and you stood up and whatever. And, and it was an, an amazing experience, an amazing culinary experience, but also uh, a great cook and a cultural experience. So please call in, folks. Tell us which cities you think are actually great for dining out. Uh, but be clear with your criteria. Is this Does it have loads of great restaurants and the quality of the food, or is this great uh, range of diversity? But um, I need to thank you for that um, rather good question, Nicole. Uh, we have one more call, and um, it's somebody who hmm, I think she might know one of the podcasters here. Hi, Map Corner. I am calling to ask about world maps. Of all the world maps that have been made, I know that the one most commonly seen in most classrooms, etc., isn't an accurate representation. Which map is the best to represent the world? Thanks. Mm. That's my kid's mother. So thank you for that, Megan. Uh, What do you reckon, Claire? (laughs) I thought you weren't going to give her a name then. I think that's, that's not a very kind of complimentary way of referring to someone. Um, so, uh, well, it's a very hotly debated thing. And we've had a few things come in on the uh, Facebook page about alternative uh, projections. Uh, and it's a, certainly a subject which rages amongst the uh, mapping community on Twitter. So mm. I, I hesitate to express a preference, to be honest. I think if we were all brought up on... Uh, Mercator, somehow other things look skewed when in fact it's the other way around which is just a bit daft really isn't it um, I quite like the ones that kind of split the world up in weird and different ways like the ones that create geodesic domes and that kind of thing because it makes mm. you look at it in different ways and I quite like the ones that sort of take an epicenter in a different place uh, because again if you're taking a different projection that immediately changes your perspective by not looking at it with, you know, America on the left and Japan on the right sort of and, and taking it in that normal 
approach. I quite like having my perspective shifted, not just by the by the projection, but by the sort of epicenter of a map. So I don't know, uh, but I just like all sorts of maps really. So I'm what not. Do you mean fussy. you don't know? You just said, yeah, I don't know. After being really clear and erudite with your answer, then you just said, ended it with, I don't know. You, you obviously do know. <laughs> um, I don't have I'm a preference. Be... I just like, I like lots of different kinds of maps. And I'm not like, you know, I, I'm not wedded to one over another. I don't think any of them are hateful. I mean, there are people who have incredibly strong feelings on this. Uh, and I understand why. But uh, I just don't get that excited about the different types. I just enjoy them. I enjoy them all. Mm. Does that make more sense? Yeah, no, it does. I think, and you, and you did kind of touch on this at the start of your answer, but we can't help but view each projection of the world that we see by Mercator, because it's the one we've seen the most. So even if we don't want to admit it, subconsciously that is our norm and we understand that the countries that are further away from the equator are more distorted they, they appear bigger so greenland looks massive when actually uh, it's smaller than mexico but in terms of understanding where the countries are in the world and their relationships to each other i think mercator does a good job Yes, Russia is way too big. Yes, Canada gets scarily big, or you know, Baffin Island, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But just understanding physically where Spain is, where Burkina Faso is, where Mozambique is, where Peru is, it's a great map. Though I do like when you get um, one of them is called a transverse Mercator projection, which when when you see it it's almost as if the world's continents are all one kind of landmass and it, and it is it's a really interesting projection because if you imagine alaska down to south america um you know it, it's the the two continents north america and south america are connected by this thin slither of land uh central america but then if you imagine the the very end of uh south america almost just kind of touch with the falkland islands the tip of um antarctica mm-hmm. so and what you see through that map is this kind of trail of a broken land bridge that goes all the way from Antarctica, South America, North America, across the Bering Strait into in, into Asia. And then, of course, Asia then connects to Africa. And it is, it is fascinating, actually, to see the world in that way, that all the land masses are kind of connected or almost connected. Um, but simply to answer your question, uh, Megan, uh, there is no projection which... Um, squares the circle so to speak because the inherent problem is is that the world is a ball and you're flattening it somehow and when you flatten it there is some level of distortion somewhere so all of these new projections or newer ones than Mercator try to take that into account but have big compromises that they need to make Um, so when you talked about Claire about those projections which have um, the, 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 the different kind of hemispheres, which always reminds me of the 1970s. It seems to be the 1970s when that 
kind of view of the world kind of came in, into its own. Um, uh, that, but but it, but it's weird because you think right there is a there is a big physical gap between let's say Europe and North America or for Africa and 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 Australia you know so there's always compromises that these projections need to make but I'll be somewhat controversial and say just to understand where countries are in the world and our relationship to them wherever you actually are Mercator is a good place to start, but mm-hmm. don't just look at Mercator because with different projections, you see different relationships between the land masses, uh, which are uh, pretty interesting. I, I'm just looking themselves. at, there's a thing you posted to the Facebook group, which is a, um, a web page from Jason Davies Maps, which just looks at different map projections. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, it's kind of psychedelic. I'm finding myself quite uh, hypnotized by it uh, <laughs> um, and it just really emphasizes how those different projections starting in different places can do very strange things to the size mm. and shape of different countries across the globe so i recommend that cool um being as we're on facebook is there any other facebook action on our facebook group that you'd like to tell us oh, about oh there's been loads of facebook action because we've not recorded for a while so there's been all sorts going on and whose fault um, is that so gallivanting throughout the world without a care for your throughout listeners. The world with all the it required to record which i bought specially to take on holiday with me and did someone call me and do a recording no they didn't so i'll just put that there so anyway um i've been told we have had some <laughs> you have uh yeah i finally had some interesting other places to do recordings from and uh you know did we no anyway um moving on so we've had some really interesting ideas for some future conversations um, especially enjoyed the post that uh, Witherspoon made around the AAA triptychs, um, the maps that were created for people's like pure personally curated road trip maps from America. I just love the idea of these, and I think it would be great to do um, a bit more of a feature on on those. So I uh, would love to come back to that in a future um future episode i really liked the having just been on some very long plane tra- flights uh our liz villa lobos sent a thing around how the maps that you can see on the um, seat back in front of you when you're on a long distance flight they are looking at ways of monetizing those and they're calling it geotainment um now frankly watching the route map on a 17-hour flight when I went from London to Perth was geotainment enough for me. I really liked that. I (laughs) I found some interesting places I'd never heard of. And, you know, oh, my God, Central Asia takes a heck of a long time to go over. That's all I'll say. But um, that's, uh, you know, I just, I I mean, I love that that thing in an aeroplane when it tells you where you're at and what you're seeing and what's behind you and and so on. Um, So, but this is about sort of, giving you more information overlaying from where you are with something a little bit more kind of intuitive uh in terms of providing a kind of more detail and, and and ultimately obviously selling your stuff about either the places you're going to or the places you've gone by um 
because all these things have to be monetized somehow. But I thought that was quite an interesting concept. So that's worth looking at if you're um, interested in what it looks like to sit in a plane and look at the map in front of you. Um, and also a couple of there people... One, one minute there, Claire, one yeah. second. There was... Um... There's something in the news, and this is, I'm so rubbish. There's something in the news in the last month about the upgrade that in-flight maps are going to get. And I'll just say that. I cannot remember what exactly it was, but it was worth the effect of more people watch their little blue dot uh, on 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 the screen when 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 they fly, then people realise it. It people do find it entertaining, and some companies come in with some new software, uh, which is going to allow you to do all manner of things uh, when you put your finger on on the screen. Yes, that's but this. what exactly those things were, I cannot remember. Oh, I'll shut up then. Okay. <laughs> I think that was probably the article that was shared on the Facebook page. Um, so yeah. Uh, but, you know, I agree. Um, and I imagine that everyone listening to this and as a member of the online Facebook community are the kind of people who, when on a flight, are watching the map uh, above other things. Not all the time. I watch some other things on the flights, but I did spend a lot of time defaulting to the map because who wouldn't? Maps are great. Um and a couple of really great maps that were shared on the Facebook site were beautiful sort of artist poster maps by a guy called Joe Mora, um, one of California um, and another one I think it was of um, possibly the Grand Canyon or something like that. Um, and I looked up Joe Mora because I thought it was just so beautiful and uh, he was a sort of cartoonist and artist and a cowboy who lived, you know, out in the out in the far west of America and in also the South America from Uruguay. Um, he was born in 1876. And so he saw kind of the end of, I guess, what would be considered sort of the old west and the beginning of a modern age. Uh, and he does some beautiful, beautiful maps. Definitely look up Joe Mora because they're just, you know, amazing works of art. And he was an artist in his own right, but doing all sorts of other things, as well, but he took a lot of inspiration from his work, um, you know, out on ranches in uh, in California, and uh, also his understanding of Native American kind of tradition. So, one to one to look at. I really appreciated people sharing those because they were beautiful. Um, and just one final mention on the Facebook around something that John Sultani shared, which was this sort of live map of where earthquakes happen um uh, around the globe which was mm. um well makes you grateful that you're not in a place where one's happening of course but uh, it was a really actually it was a, one of those other things it was an animation and it was a, it just became a really beautiful animation um it's another way that you know the visual presentation of information which is what a map is really can be beautiful as well as informative you know it has to be said all the time that i've spent in the bay area I've never been there when there's been an earthquake. Twice I've left for a weekend away and people have said, oh, did you, did you feel the, the the small tremor? I'm like, what? No, I've missed it again. So I do almost feel like I haven't quite got my Bay Area stripes because I've never been there when there's been that low bass rumble and a picture has just randomly fallen off of a wall. You know, People say yeah. that you, you can blink and, and miss them. 
you know, but when, when you've, when you're conscious and you've been through one, you, you do then kind of like n- know what's happening, but like, yeah, but I, I, I've never been through one and, and I kind of feel a, like yeah, I'm a bit of a lucky charm. in the Bay Area, you know, being there off and on for five maybe years. Maybe while you're there, maybe, it keeps the, maybe you've got, maybe you're some sort of San Francisco <laughs> superhero that you physically being there stops the place having earthquakes. That will appeal to you because you're such a superhero guy. There Which you I mean, go. you like superheroes, not that you are one. That is very true. <laughs> I, 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 got, I got what you meant. I got what you meant. Um, though I do like to tuck my shirt into my underpants, uh, whatever. But anyway, um, so that's Facebook dealt with. Uh, did we have any action on Twitter? And of course, to find us on Facebook, quite simply go on to Facebook and type in Map Corner. Absolutely. Uh, Twitter's quieter. And I have to say, quite a lot of the traffic on the map corner hashtag on Twitter uh, is me. (laughs) (laughs) Although we did have a great um, post from Catherine Rowan Jones around um, areas of Britain that are more than 15 miles from a waterway. Now, that sounds really quite sort of niche, but it actually gives you a real feel for this was in the um kind of pre-industrial age and that's that's how people got stuff around um Mm. so it just shows you which areas were particularly geographically isolated by way of not being near water uh in a way that mattered then and matters less now that we have you know roads and railways and stuff um but uh, yeah I've, i've i've um done a few up there which i of all of the ones that I like, the, there was the one about they did an experiment where they dropped a wallet in different countries, uh, different cities around the world and saw how many of them came back or were handed in. Um, interesting, that one. Um, I have to say that uh, Iberian Peninsula, not good. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, so, so some places do better than others. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, you want to if you're going to lose a, if you're going to lose your wallet, you want to do it in Helsinki because the chances of getting it back are very substantially better than Lisbon and Madrid. Um, uh, and uh, that so that was that was an interesting one. I also just saw the thing that was posted. To, I think it was, might have been Ken who posted it on the Facebook group about kind of um, web search web searches uh and uh in 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 europe and i think spain was uh spain and portugal were also pretty dubious ones so i don't know what's going on there what it says about the national character um if true so um but i would say sorry you carry on no i was gonna say that i actually thought i'd really like to look at the methodology of how they came up with that study because it's one thing yeah. to say we dropped a wallet in London. Where in London? You know, did you drop it in yeah. Kensington or in Knightsbridge? Or did you drop it in Harlesden? Or did you drop it in Walthamstow? You know, or in Bow? You know, these are the areas which have very different socioeconomic uh, profiles. Yeah. So. Well, London scored five out of 12 returns. So just under 50%. Hmm. But I, still, though, right, their, their methodology needs to be examined. I think, don't get me wrong, it makes for tweetable content. It's the type of thing you, oh, look at that. Yeah. The, the Finns, they're honest. You know, oh, look at the people from, I don't know, Ulaanbaatar. 
thieves, the lot of them, right? It, you know, it, it makes for interesting, <laughs> tweetable. Uh, listen, we've got no listeners yeah. in Ulan Bator, so I, I can say that and just about get away with it. But, um, but yes, how many wallets? How did they pick the areas? Did the socioeconomic difference between the areas of each city, did they match up with the other cities? You know, you well, need that level of detail. Rio, Rio and Zurich scored the same number of returns. So, you and, know, I'd, I'd like, I'd, I'd suggest that they have slightly different makeups. And I saw that and I thought to myself, hmm, I want to see the methodology. I actually don't want to see the methodology because I've got a life to live. However, right, if I was sat in front of them. <laughs> but yes. Um, so um, anything else on the Twitters? Well, I cannot go without giving a little mention to one that I tweeted a few years, a few weeks ago, actually, um, in April, which was uh, picking up on um, something we did discuss last time, which was about population density. And it was the population Mm -hmm. density of the UK in Joy Division style. And I'm, you know, I'm a little bit young for Joy Division, but, uh, you know, it's a really iconic image the uh, sort of Joy Division album cover um, and if you haven't seen it go back onto the Twitter at the hashtag Matt Corner and, 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 and scroll down to you find it because it's just a thing of beauty and it's such a clever idea and so you know such an obvious one when you see it um, but uh, yeah it's, it's, it's just a lovely piece of art really in the way that the original Joy Division cover I guess was a, a, a beautiful piece of art but mm. it's saying something also about the population of the UK so um, yeah, I definitely uh, would recommend that one as my favourite map of the last few weeks No that was absolutely stunning so whoever did that needs a pat on the back and a gold star because um, it was utterly clever, utterly clever. Um, but it did remind me of an incident which happened just last year. I was out with, with, with my daughter, Ella, and she said, I really like that T-shirt. And I went, what, the Joy Division one? She went, Dad, how do you know that's Joy Division? Because they're really cool. I went, I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it really underlined the fact that she saw me as an old fart. But I think more importantly than that, because, you know, teenagers are supposed to think that your parents are are just not with it. Massive difference between kids today and us when we were growing up and subsequent generations. When it comes to popular music, we had a real appreciation of the chronology of popular music. Elvis was the 50s, the Beatles were the 60s, the 70s were, let's say, ABBA and, and, and Soul and whatever. And, da, da, da. and then New Romantics and New Wave of the early 80s. And kids now, music is just a thing. It's around them all the time. Yeah, it's a digitization, isn't it? they don't tribally follow genres. Exactly. They don't follow genres the way that we, we used to. And... So for her, I said, do you know this is really old music? And she went, no, I just know that it's cool. I went, it's like Joy Division, Love Will Tear Us Apart. It's like 1980. And she went, how do you know all this? I went, because I was there. <laughs> you know, but, but, but for her, it's an, it's an iconic image. Yeah. And then she hears the music and she doesn't assign it to an era. It's not 80s music, it's just music. music. Yeah. But it's nice that they see the image at all, yeah, and to be it, fair. because it, it's utterly flawed me. Yeah, you don't always get to see the image these days. I mean, that that's one of the things I miss. I'm coming out all old world now. But, I, you know, one of the things I miss 
from the um, days of vinyl, which is interesting to see how vinyl's made such a resurgence, actually, because of that, the tactile feeling mm. of getting something substantial to, you know, in, in, a, in a proper old LP record and a, you know, and a nice inner sleeve and all the, you know, lyrics on the sleeve and the extra photos and a Ooh. gatefold album cover. Oh, wasn't the, that the, nice? The paper in a yeah, sleeve. Yeah, all of that. And that, <laughs> it was never the same to have a cassette tape or a CD. And, um, you know, and digital's a whole other thing again. So I can understand that kind of visceral mm. connection to doing music with that thing to hold. Um you know, because I guess, but then that's because I grew up mm. with that. So it, that's what feels normal. It's interesting to see mm. how people who haven't grown up with it, or maybe grew up with CDs, which, you know, weren't quite the same thing, um, have suddenly taken to vinyl. And I don't know if that's a UK thing or a worldwide thing, but you can buy mm. vinyl LPs in my local supermarket. And, you know, modern, you know, not just historic ones, but like, you know, on re release, but new ones. And, um, yeah, it seems so strange, especially because I like Cardi I sold, B and Kanye I sold West. All my old vinyl years ago <laughs> in a big job lot because no one wanted it, and I was fed up with carting it around from one place to another. And now I wish I'd held on to it. There you go. You live and learn. You do, you do. Um, that's just about us done on, on yeah. the Twitters, isn't it? But you know, I'm 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 there practically on my own. So, so if you see stuff on Twitter, hashtag Map Corner, and I will find it. Yay! Um, I think that's us just about done, folks. Um, we've done the Facebook, we've done the Twitter. Uh, we are going to um, give you a roll call next week of everybody that's written us a review. So please go on to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Um, that's that's been me, uh, somewhat. Uh, tired well just about soldiered through but Claire as manfully um, he said uh, in parentheses <laughs> held the show together so well done to you Claire and, and maybe uh, in the next episode uh, we'll not only have your audio postcard but you'll tell us a little bit about uh, your travels through the yeah, great, great continent and remember if you want to add your voice to the show you go on to mapcorner.space and hit the little red tab over on the right hand side which says voicemail and send us a voicemail is there anything uh, we forgot to mention that uh, we should no I think that's probably enough gabbing on isn't it yeah I think so oh, I couldn't even shut you up this week I was quite polite in places 